Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand what your company is worth and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business, build a valuable company to be proud of, and exit on your terms. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 162. And my guest today, Mike Sowers, is on the show to share with us his full journey as an entrepreneur from start to growth, the burnout to exit to then reinventing himself again at his current company. Currently, he's the founder of Commercial Investors Group. He has a podcast called The Creative Commercial Real Estate Show. And Mike is doing a bunch of wonderful things today as he's growing a portfolio of companies and real estate and educational boot camps to help people become financially free. But it was a long journey for Mike to get to where he is today. He started his first business executive remodeling after working at College Pro Painters while he was in college. And he had experienced a bunch of challenges after having a serious impact from the financial crisis. So he had to dig out of that using other people's money, create a company where he not only was becoming financially free himself where he was making unbelievable money and only working 20 hours a week because he had automated and systematized the quoting process in general contracting and remodeling, which we all know is one of the most convoluted, biggest pain in the butts ever. So Mike took and systematized all this, ended up making a bunch of money. But as we talk about in this show, it's sometimes not all about the money because Mike became financially free. Then he had a lot of time and he ended up started dealing with some emotional baggage that he had grown up with in the past where he was reflecting and saying, what's this all about? Is it about the money? Is it about the business? What is the ultimate end goal? And I think a lot of us entrepreneurs, we keep pushing those goal lines farther and farther back as we hit the milestones that we originally set out to get. So on today's show, Mike explains not only how he systematized, grew and sold the company, But the emotional challenges he dealt with when he was free financially and still owning the business, why he sold it, the challenges he went through emotionally after that as he reinvented himself, and then how he is going into chapter two of his life and rebuilding this business to help people and to help really make a big difference. So I absolutely loved how much authenticity Mike shared his story with it because I've had plenty of people on the show that after we get off the recording then they share some more of the deepest darkest secrets and today Mike was just real and I think that we need more and more people that have gone through the entire cycle of as, as an entrepreneur to share their story so that way you listeners can understand what you're dealing with so that way you can learn how to process these different things financially and emotionally before you pull the ripcord and sell the company. If you want to do this kind of work on yourself and be able to learn what your company's worth, what are your different exit options, ways to increase the value of your company, understanding what your personal drivers are as you rebuild this picture, check out one of our upcoming boot camps. We have two coming on in Minneapolis, Minnesota at Bethel University, October 8th, 9th, and 10th. Mike will be attending along with a bunch of other entrepreneurs and then also in December on the 3rd, 4th, and 5th, as well as Dayton, Ohio on November 12th, 13th, and 14th. 
and January 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. Our goal in these two and a half day boot camps is to use two case studies of two businesses, walk you through what they're worth, how to increase the value of their company, all the different value drivers, how to deal with the deal structures, the tax plans, the valuations. Literally, it's a crash course on mergers and acquisitions so you can take control and rebuild and revision your entire goal for your company before you go through a situation like Mike went through. Now he's doing it in round two with his company, so I encourage you to check out our bootcamp pages and reach out to me if you got questions. I'm happy to walk through the two and a half day agenda. So without further ado, here's my episode with Mike. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Bootcamps. Three days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Three days at Arcona's Bootcamp will give you the clarity to control the rest of the journey. Mike, how you doing? Hey, I'm living the dream one breath at a time. (laughs) And you're you're trying to find those breaths as we were just talking. Uh, we're new into fatherhood, entrepreneur, doing it all at the same time. Been there, d- doing that, and it's. Uh, <laughs> I think you and I were talking about what, what's harder: raising kids or starting companies. And I don't know if we actually actually determined which one was. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, definitely they're both in the running there. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on the show. You've, you know, you're, you're at a young age. You've gone through a, an exit yourself, grown a company, sold it. You're off onto a new venture and have a different lens and how you're doing this new thing. And so, you know, for the listeners, we'll kind of take it back. I mean, you also have your face in a similar business model of kind of what I've got going on from boot camps to speaking and and I'm I'm excited to to collaborate with you, Mike. But let's maybe kind of go back and just give everybody just a, a quick uh, run through of what you do and why you're doing it, and then we can kind of go back and like tell tell that one story of how you started and how you became an entrepreneur. Sure. Uh, so going all the way back, I grew up in the Twin Cities. Here, I went to uh, Brooklyn Park. Well, I grew up in Brooklyn Park. I went to Park Park Center High School, and then I went to the U of M. And uh, I grew up divorced parents, you know, and. Uh, when I was going to college, I was kind of like, well, what do I want to do? I kind of knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur ever since I was age 12. I was always the banker in Monopoly. And I remember <laughs> I would be using Monopoly money to pay other kids to clean up my toys and things like that. So I kind of knew I wanted to be able to leverage uh, my time and uh, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in college, started uh, investing in some real estate in college, and then ran a franchise for college pro painters for a couple of years. And so it was cool because I was kind of learning franchise systems during the the internship, if you want to call it that, and doing that, learning systems. But then I was able to apply kind of what I was actually learning in the classroom to a real business model, which was super helpful. And then, uh, so, so fast forward, I'm I'm about ready to graduate. And I was like, well, do I want to go into commercial real estate or do I want to start my own business? I don't really know what kind of business I would start. I kind of know how to run this painting business. So I started a spinoff of college pro painters and it was called college exteriors. And I had this genius idea that we were going to start roofing and siding houses. My brother at the time was doing installs for that stuff. And uh, I found out very, very quickly that college kids are cut out for painting, but not for roofing inside. <laughs> the, the more complicated the, the situation. I, there's another, uh, you ever heard of, uh, there's like a moving company. So maybe they're capable of moving some stuff to here in town. Yeah, yeah. To, to uh, what's the moving company? It's, uh, it's like a big muscle. College honks. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what the one you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pretty funny name though. So I did that. I changed the name to Executive Exteriors and we got blessed with a couple of really big hailstorms. So it was like, we're all grinding. You know, I learned how to uh, sell books door to door. I did that for a summer before I was at College Pro with the Southwestern Company. And you just learn how to get your teeth kicked in, how to take a no, but not how to like actually be like personally rejected. And so you kind of get through that. That experience i didn't make any money but uh, i spent the whole summer in michigan away from my family and friends and girlfriend but uh, i wouldn't trade that experience for anything um it taught me two things one is make sure you're selling something you truly believe in so if you don't believe in what you're selling it's really hard to sell so true um and the second thing i learned is that no just means not right now so that was really my two two biggest lessons that I took out of that. It was like, hey, make sure you really find something that you're passionate about, and then everything just kind of falls into place. So 
here I am graduating college. I'm buying more real estate than I had any kind of business buying. That was back when you could do stated income loans. And I think I was like 21 <laughs> years old and I had a, a duplex and I had a property I was living in. We had seven other guys. We were house hacking that deal. Uh, I had all the other guys paying the mortgage and I was staying for free. <laughs> and way over leveraged myself. And this is in 2005 going into 2006. And, you know, sure as the day is night, uh, then uh, the, the market kind of tanked and uh, I was caught holding the bag. So I had uh, kind of weed my lawn when it came to real estate. And that was around the time I was starting my, my spinoff business. So company was executive exteriors. I bought a house, moved out to Plymouth. I uh, negotiated some short sales on the initial couple houses that I way overpaid for. I think one of them I was into for like 320,000. I think it sold for 95,000. Oh my gosh. On a short sale. And you, and you bought all these with just what, one, one pay stub? Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, just stated income, man. So um, I think I was making like $30,000 a summer painting houses. And I, I don't know the, Turns out the loan guy who owned one of the properties that sold it to me is the same guy who did the loan. And he, he turned out not to be the most honest guy in the world. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I don't, I don't blame any of my mistakes that I've made in life on other people. I try and figure out, you know, what's my piece of the pie? How can I own it? And that way I can grow from it. That actually turned out to be a blessing. My credit got shot and I had to learn how to continue doing deals and not giving up. So a lot of people want to give up at that point. So, you know, as a kid, you know, we both have little ones at home, right? That kid falls down all the time. You don't say like, yeah, it's time to throw on the towel, right? You just yeah, you're crawling for the rest of your life. <laughs> they keep going, right? So um, that's really how it needs to be in life. I think, you know, it, it's not, did I win or lose? It's, you know, what did I learn? And so I'm always going into the experiences like, all right, so I learned that now I got to figure out how to get other people's money to get financed or do seller financing. So I started going to all these boot camps and seminars, investing a lot of time and money into educating myself on how to like get creative about buying real estate. And I started growing this real estate company where I was wholesaling. I was using other people's money to buy properties and things like that. And I was kind of elevating that business while I was still actively growing a construction company. The construction company switched from just selling retail door-to-door -door roofs and siding to actually selling hail damage. And that was like, wait, you mean to tell me that I can sell a roof for just the price of your deductible? And it was like, it blew my mind when I figured out that I could go in after a hailstorm and the insurance money would pay for the entire roof except for the deductible. It's like, if I can sell a $10,000 roof to somebody, how can I not sell a $500 roof? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, hey, I got an idea for you. So you were selling like full retail roofs before that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't know anybody that's paid full retail for a roof in Minnesota for like decades. Right. Yeah. Well, this was, you know, back, you know, this was back before there was a hundred guys at your door when the hail hit your door, right? <laughs> there would be one or two guys. So, you know, that business has grown quite a bit, but we basically transitioned from a, a retail roofing and siding company to a full storm damage restoration company. And then I started getting requests for like, well, do you do kitchens and bathrooms? And my gears are spinning like, well, no, we don't, but we should be, you know, if we're getting these requests. So we started getting a lot of customers that wanted other services. So I did a couple basements, a couple bathrooms. And what I realized there was a big problem in the market with the process of how most people ran general contracting companies. I'd go to my continuing education education classes and I'd look around the room and all the all the guys it was first of all it was almost a hundred percent males at every ed class they're all wearing flannel shirts and have gray hair <laughs> and i'm like i'm the only dude in the room that's in my 20s and everybody else is 50 years older older and i'm like what's the future of this industry so that kind of concerned me a little bit is what is the future of the industry but then i realized that's why the process is the process. See, the, the way most contractors bid their jobs, they go out, they take some measurements, chat with the homeowner. All right, I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. They go back, they talk to their plumber, their electrician, they add up all their labor and materials, and then they mark it up. They write up a proposal, maybe do some drawings, and then they come back out. And that can take a week. It can take a month. And that's what was pretty typical. Well, College Pro taught me the one sit close, baby, 10 steps, get in and get out with the <laughs> contract in hand. So I'm like, how can I use the 10 step sales process 
this isn't just walking around a house estimating a paint job, though. This is much more complex. This is usually 10 to 12 different trades on a bathroom remodel or kitchen remodel or basement. How can I systematize the process so that's repeatable, perfectible, and I can have a high schooler doing it? So what we did is we built a, a, like a dynamic spreadsheet where I actually went directly to all my vendors. I go to my plumber and say, all right, how do you bid your jobs? If they were a labor and material guy, they weren't my guy. And I just kept going until I found somebody who would bid it like, here's my price per faucet. Here's my price per sink. Here's my price per dishwasher. And I would write out all the line items that they would use to bid their job. And then I would put all the costs into a column on that spreadsheet. And I did that meticulously for every single trade. I basically pre-built my vendors list and my cost sheets by trade, by vendor. And then I would just, you know, I, it was a spreadsheet. You would just punch in the quantities. You could filter out the zero quantity fields. And what you'd have left is a full cost spreadsheet. And then all I had to do was type a number into my markup field and it would generate all the retail sales prices. Which is so ridiculous. Like, I want to keep going into that. It's just, like, think about, first of all, you, you made some, you know, pretty good, you know, frameworks around, you know, they, they go out there, they look at stuff, which is probably all, like, I mean, how many times I've done like the contractors and anybody listening here knows that contractors in today's world, like they make it, make you want to pull out your hair, right? Like, because if they come out, then they look around with no way of understanding what you actually said. They might have a scratch piece of paper. Then they go back. And if they ever call you back, then probably wrong. There's like some random way that they found their pricing. And like, I I mean, I can't, there's one guy that we used to redo our whole upstairs last year's kitchen and everything. He was a previous uh, teacher. So he like, he kind of had his stuff together, but it was very still same, same process though. Like, so they're going back and then they're, they're reaching out to all their vendors, right? To kind of, I'm assuming just very like sloppily build this cost structure, which they still are guessing is my guess. I mean, they're not doing anything or they don't know how much money they have until after the fact is my guess. Yeah. Well, just think from a workflow. So what I went to college for, I majored in entrepreneurial studies and finance. So I love doing two things. I love crunching numbers and I love segregating out business processes and then rewriting them. So that's a big piece of entrepreneurship. And and so I'm really looking at the industry standard for construction and I didn't grow. Everybody always used to ask me, like, did, did you, did you grow up in construction? Like you seem to to know it. I'm like, no, I just like, I know how to, um, you know, I know how to read a book and I know how to look at a process. I was never the best construction or expert. Right. But I knew enough to be dangerous on that side. Really where I excelled was in putting together a process that allowed me to estimate and project manage very, very efficiently. And that's what was scalable. And that's ultimately what I ended up selling is a process. I'm not the best manager of people. That's an area that I still want to continue investing time and, and effort into that area. Um, and it's an area where, um, you know, people are difficult. And I do find that, you know, I think that the topic of leadership is an infinite topic. Mm -hmm. I think that it's an area where I want to continue investing into myself and and, uh, our team and just being better at being able to communicate with people. And, you know, those are skills that go into all aspects of your life with your kids, with your, with your wife and your spiritual side, all that stuff. So. Did you know oh, that's that, just uh, kind of a side note. So yeah, back to the business process. Well, I was going to say one second. Did you know that uh, Simon Sinek's new book that's coming out? It's called The Infinite Game. It's about the infinite game of leadership. Uh-uh. <laughs> so he, you're on the right track with the, the, the vernacular there. I'm super pumped to read the book. But going back to, to when you're saying going back to the business. So Mike, how did that change the dynamic or and, and the process of your business, like how did your business change once you started doing things like that? And then from growth, from like how you were dealing with customers and kind of give it like a, what was the before after as you, as you built that out and how long did that take? And then how did that kind of, you know, release the bottlenecks of what you're doing? Well, at first I was doing everything with spreadsheets, but then the challenge with the spreadsheets is, you know, how do you communicate between multiple people when everybody's got spreadsheets? Now you got downloading, uploading, oh, and yeah. It's just, it's not uh, really a unified system. So eventually I, I bought a cookie cutter system that was customizable and I took my spreadsheet and I rebuilt all my estimating line items in their software 
which was a fully integrated, you know, front to back cover software. So then we did all of our CRM leads management in that software. It flowed into the estimating. So now I didn't have the double entry of the customer data. Mm-hmm. Right. I just grabbed the lead and started a new estimate for that customer. Then that uh, estimate flowed into the contract. It would spit out a digital contract that I could either print on my mobile printer, which I'd have in my truck, and I'd print off a hard copy. <laughs> Walk away the contract. <laughs> yeah, for the seventy-year-old couple that you know doesn't want to see it on an iPad, or if I had a younger couple and they could sign right on my uh, right on my iPad. <laughs> then. Because I had built everything where it was cost plus and I already had a scope of work, it was just a matter of selecting the vendors. The system allowed me to basically chop the estimate into its various trade components and create purchase orders and work orders and then send them out, schedule all of that. The homeowner was communicated with, the vendors were communicated with, everybody had vendor portals, and then all that flowed into the back-end accounting. So where you'd have like allowances for fixtures and things like that, where we give the homeowner a certain budget, that was that was one of the key pieces to me being able to sell. So, so at the end, I, I could walk into your home, Ryan, and I could design your kitchen or your basement in full color 3D and give you a fully itemized estimate with a contract for you to sign on where you would have allowance numbers for all your fixtures. You didn't have to have any of that selected. And I could do all that in two to three hours and have a signed contract and a deposit. Oh my gosh. Even for the people that want to buy that service right now, even having that would be a dream come true. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that was the system that became very, very scalable. And there's very, very few contractors in, in the Midwest for sure. And I would argue nationwide that still have implemented something like that. So it's just a matter there's a, you know, it's the, the project management end of things is still probably the biggest bottleneck for that business is just how do you effectively manage all those different trades and things like that. Um, so how did that work? You know, cause I, I've covered this topic on the show before, Mike, where you take like a service-based business uh, and then, you know, whether it's service plus products or whatever, and then you kind of shift it more into like a technology or lever- leverageable where you're decoupling the time from the, uh, the, the dollars and the dollars exchange. You know, mm-hmm. what was the investment into that? You know, because there's people that would go out and they didn't, they just spend $2 million and not knowing if the customer wants it versus like the rapid, okay, like I think this is working. So what was the time frame of that and the investment in that? And then how did that, you know, how did your, how did your growth trajectory change after you'd done that? Well, it allowed me to scale. I went from like three sales reps to 14 sales reps. And instead of just selling a bunch of jobs, producing a bunch of jobs, and then hoping that I had, you know, more money in my checking account at the end of the day than less, <laughs> I mean, that's really effectively how most contractors manage it. It's just like, hey, do I have money in my account at the end of the day or not? Because the, the timeline, you, you're collecting deposits here, but you haven't started the job. And then on this other job, you've spent more than you've collected. It's like you're always robbing Peter to pay Paul. Construction mm-hmm. jobs, the cash flow on construction sucks. It's, it's a really weird timeline. So I went from basically being a haphazard, crazy managed to where I could go to Florida and manage my business from my computer very effectively. I'd know exactly where I was at on every job with every work order, every sales rep, what their margin was. I had backend reporting. So it, it, um, it was a game changer and it, it cost about $50,000 and a couple hundred hours of my time to really custom code everything. You know, I think a big mistake that that I've made uh, and other people I see making is where you, as an owner, you, you really have to um, you have to play a very integral part in developing the system, the technology mm-hmm. piece of your business, because you and you alone have that mastery of like knowing how the process needs to work. You can't really farm out the brains behind it. You gotta, I think, play a very integral role in developing the the flow chart of the processes, I think. And then once you arrive at, all right, here's the final process, then you can have somebody project manage the build out of it. I think you, you, you nailed it there. I actually just interviewed a guy named uh, Chris Ronzio. He created a, um, a company called Trainual and it's about getting your business out of your brain because in the, I, I go back to even like, as when I look at these, the insides of these different clients of ours or com- of owners that have done this, they understand the systems. You know, before it used to be the interactions, but now it's like the ERPs or the workflows. 
because you can't delegate this stuff unless you understand the whole picture. And I see if there's the two, to your point, I see so many mistakes of, okay, I'm just going to hire an IT director here and a CFO over here, but they don't talk. They didn't, they're not working off of some big masterpiece of like a picture of a puzzle and then just shit's just broken all over the place and you don't have the efficiencies of the whole picture. And it's, and then you're really stuck and you're just pretty much playing whack-a-mole the whole time and you don't get the efficiencies of doing that stuff. <laughs> whack-a-mole, I love that. <laughs> so, you know, when, when you look at, what did, did, was there anything interesting of how, when you started doing that, Mike, of how, you know, cash flow started to work? Were you able to collect, it, you know, checks up in front? Like, how did that change your cash flow and your ability to, to create, you know, actual margins instead of just having a paycheck? Yeah, well, the first thing is we always were able to track the allowances. So I got a guy, he goes into Home Depot and he's going to buy some plumbing fixtures, right? Under the old system, he would grab that receipt that would go into his car, maybe fly out the window. And eventually someday, somehow somebody in the accounting department, which was me, would have to take that receipt and reconcile the actual cost against what was sold. And that never happened. So we were probably leaving two to $3,000 per job on the table where customers go in and they upgrade on the fixtures and stuff, plus our margin on top of that. Mm -hmm. So instead of people upgrading on fixtures becoming a profit center, it was a, it was a loss for us. So that was, that was a huge piece of it. So what we did now is under the new system, the allowance would get logged at the estimate level that would carry through to the work order. That person on their mobile app would take a picture of the receipt at Home Depot and then their response, and then they would enter that into basically QuickBooks online, and it would tag that expense back against the allowance in the estimate in QuickBooks. And then if there was a difference, I would catch that through a report. So then I just had to do a report every week, figure out where people were over on their allowances and bill out appropriately. So it, it just streamlined that whole process. That's just one of many areas where we found that there was inefficiencies in the system where it was like we're spending a ton of time and headache trying to manage all these little expenses, you know, and if it's 20 bucks here, 20 bucks there, but it costs you $100 to pay somebody to manage that cost, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So there were also certain areas where we're like, we're just not going to track these things. Like, let's just... Instead of giving them an allowance, let's have kind of a standard fixtures selection where it's like, here's our standard package. Here's what we got in there for that. If you want to go above and beyond that, a lot of times we would just say fixtures by homeowner and let them provide their own fixtures rather than us paying for it and having to reconcile those costs. So some of it's changing the technology and having the technology, but some of it's just really looking at how much time and time equates to cost, are we spending on certain areas of the business process? And is there areas where we can maybe trim some fat? So in what I, I think it's a way of thinking, right? Of like constantly, like what Chris and I were talking about a couple episodes ago is like, you're constantly trying to you know make things better, right? I mean, versus, do you think they're like, how was the mindset? Like, was it frustration for you or was it like, for me, I hate doing things twice. <laughs> and so if I have to do it again, I'm just like, this is why. So like, what, what was this mindset mindset shift for you or what, you know, was it born or were you kind of born with it? And how does that compare to other people in the industry? And the reason that the, the reason for the question is I think a lot of entrepreneurs trying to decouple and shift that versus kind of looking at their peers and just thinking differently is just, I think potentially sometimes a challenge And that. I'm just curious on how you could, how you found that or like what, what the root of it is. We triggered a few things there. Um, one is working on your business versus in your business is a challenge. I find that I still struggle with that a little bit where, you know, I'll spend a ton of time working on my business process and then I won't make any money. <laughs> yeah. You know, go, All right. It's time to dive in sell a bunch of stuff. I also find that, um, people's nature is to be very resistant to change. And I think we have to constantly be grooming ourselves to be open to that new change. I tend to be more on the side of where like, I, I welcome and I accept change, but I'm at the forefront and the leading edge of the companies that I'm running. So, you know, how do I sell that to the people and get them on board with actually wanting to revise the process and change things? And I've been known to change things so often that sometimes it becomes confusing or overwhelming for staff. 
And so that's an area where I'm like, all right, maybe sometimes I got to take a step back and not change things so quickly. Or how do I get people more involved in the change process so that it's really their system that we're implementing? And so that's areas where I've fallen short in the past for sure is where, you know, I'm just kind of this top down change um, progression versus, you know, really getting the people involved and then allowing them to have a say in the system, but me ultimately making the final decision for how we implement the changes, but doing it with their feedback. You Mm -hmm. know, I think there's a time to delegate, you know, certain decisions and there's a time where you get feedback and you still make the decision. Then there's a time where you just got to like, Hey, this is the way it needs to be on safety issues and things like that. So figuring out when and where, which one of those routes you're going to go on, which topics is always something I think that creates a challenge to answer your question. I guess, uh, I think that it's, For me, it's always about the dream of a self-propelled automated business so that I have all the time back in the world so that I can spend it with my family, traveling the world, and just having passive residual income that, you know, just continues to come in. And so, you know, you look at the different cash flow quadrants and you want to have kind of your your active business income. I always want to stay active in the business a little bit so you can stay sharp. You don't want to lose sight of what's happening. But I think you also, you want to be able to leverage people in a team that kind of, you know, for me now it's, you know, building a real estate brokerage and property management company. So I have fee income coming in with other people kind of performing the operations side of that. Um, and then the third thing is, you know, getting your capital and using other people's capital to leverage your capital into investments that create a, a portfolio. So I ended up exiting out of my company in 2017. I took that capital, kind of had a, a come to Jesus, like literally. Yeah. I was going to say, let's maybe, because I want you to share a little bit of this because it, it, it you know, I want to unpack that, Mike, because you know, what you, from the story that you've heard and that you've told me a little bit is you did actually decouple yourself because of how you scaled the business. You had a lot more time. And I think there's this very weird paradox with entrepreneurs where we, we have this dream. I think your dream, your dream is the same as my dream is the same dream that I preach to, <laughs> you know, our part of our framework for the growth and exit. But then once you get there, it's like, now what? Because my whole identity is in building this. And then people have this whole like mental you know, anxiety or like, you know, they're just like, I don't know who I am without my company and stuff. So it kind of makes, what happened after you had grown and scaled and then what was that come to Jesus like and what what happened there? Well, we got to a point where we were doing pretty well on income and I was only having to work maybe 20 hours a week. So I was spending a lot of time traveling. I was traveling probably 13 to 15 weeks out of the year. You know, I wasn't married yet. Um, didn't have kids, you know, so it was just kind of this, this life of freedom, if you will. But, you know, it, it, uh, I think looking back and I've done a lot of, of kind of dissecting of my past, I think that I always was trying to prove something to, to fill a, a void. They call it the father wound where like, I never felt like, I never felt like I was being approved of. Like I had an older brother who I was like three and a half years older. I feel like my entire life I was working towards like trying to make my dad proud and prove my brother that I was worthy. And so it's like, you know, you live in this life thinking like, all right, once I get to that step, then I'll be satisfied. And you get to that amount, whether that's like having the house or having that certain amount of money saved away that you think like, all right, once I get there, then I'm going to start living. And then you get there and you're kind of like, you know, I don't really feel fulfilled. Well, now here's my next hurdle. I want to get to X amount of dollars in the bank or, you know, I want to have X, you know, degree or whatever. And then you get there and you're kind of like, yeah, I still don't feel fulfilled. Something's missing. You know, it's like, you're always living for tomorrow. You're always thinking like, once I have X, then I'll feel Y. And you get there and it's like one day, like a big piece that I was driving to get dad's approval. But another piece of it was my mom always struggled with money. So my dad was like, always like, man, if I asked for like a candy bar back then, he'd be like, well, you need to mow the lawn, you know, and earn that. My dad was a farmer and he was always trying to teach me the lesson that you got to work for your money because he grew up getting up at 5am and work until dark, you know, every day milking cows. I mean, it's a tough life on a dairy farm. 
And I get it. And he was a save your way to retirement kind of guy, very risk averse. And my mom, she basically, you know, I, I say her heart was bigger than her credit card limits. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, uh, and so I, I had the flip side. I had dad who was very frugal, very good at saving, worked long hours, you know, and there was that side of it like, geez, dad's never around, parents are divorced. And then on the other side, we got my mom, you know, mom worked two jobs, could barely ever make ends meet. Was always crying over money, but when it came to Christmas, we'd come down. We'd have a hundred presents under the tree, and and it got to the point where like I'd be doing chores for mom and getting paid an allowance, and then mom would overextend herself and she would borrow money from me and then pay it back when she got paid with interest. And I didn't even realize it, but when I was like ten years old, I was a hard money lender to my mom. (laughs) (laughs) So mom was like. Hey, if you wait to buy that candy bar and you, you know, give me your money or whatever, I'll return it with interest. Now you have more money to buy a candy bar. So I was learning lessons from Mm -hmm. her, but I always saw the sadness. I always saw that flip side of the coin on how much pain and devastation money, you know, that money can uh, have on a person. It's very real for many families. And I made a decision at a very, very young age that I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be rich no matter what, no matter what I have to do to be able to take care of mom. And so I don't end up crying like her all the time over money, mm-hmm. but I'm going to do it in a way where I have the time back to be able to spend with my family on like my dad. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of had this vision of who I was going to be and how I was going to get there. And I ended up going through this college pro experience and I, I kind of like, I really kind of elephant trampled a bunch of people in my way. Cause it was like, no matter what, I'm going to be successful no matter, you know, and sometimes that means like burning bridges or, you know, doing what you have to do. And I don't regret that, but I look back on it and I say, you know what, like there's a lot of decisions that I made where, you know, maybe there was other important things in my life that I should have been paying attention to instead of just money. Mm-hmm. And money was my God. It really was. And it was like, I got to a point where I realized like, Hey, I'm a millionaire now. I got more money in my account than I've ever had in my entire life, yet I still feel more bankrupt than I've ever been. And it was around that time that I realized I have enough to take care of my mom. She was struggling with depression, having suicidal thoughts. And I was like, we need to get you retired. And she just decided to to tie up the rope and kick out the ladder. And she hung herself in the garage. Oh my gosh. And, uh, that like really hit me hard, man. Cause I was like the one kind of like taking care of her. And I felt like a tremendous amount of like guilt, anger. And this was in 2015. I really started like just being pissed off at the world, man. I was just like so mad at her and I was like so guilty. I, I kept like having nightmares, like I could have saved her. So I started drinking like way more often than I should have and like partying way more than I should have. Cause I was trying to like numb out, but what I, all I was doing is I was creating a dragon inside of myself that was kind of slowly burning away everything that I had good inside of me. And it was like, I was just going down this pathway of sin and, and just like really falling short in my marriage. Uh, you know, I got married shortly thereafter to my wife, Lisa, we weren't able to have kids. It was like, you know, what is going on? Like, I just like really was going down this, this pathway that was going to lead to destruction of my life. And me and Lisa decided we were going to go down to Florida and we were down there, uh, you know, like, Hey, should we just leave all this behind and let's just start fresh. Let's just move to Florida as if like, you know, somehow making a physical move would like change things. Change for us. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes that's exactly what you got to do. You got to just change your environment, you know? And we were down there and I got a call from a business broker and we, we decided, uh, that, you know, I did not feel like I was walking in the pathway of what I was called to do on this earth. There was always that little voice telling me in the back of my head, like, dude, you're killing it. You're making like, you know, over half a million dollars a year working 20 hours a week, but it's not what you were meant to do on this earth. And I had to make a tough decision to basically sell my company and take a massive pay cut to really search out what am I meant to do? And I spent a lot of time, like, you know, just working on myself, like just, you know, finally hit this point where I hit a wall and I, I dropped to my knees and I, I just like, you know, I found, found my spiritual side again, man. I got back into church. <laughs> yeah. I got back into church, man. I, I, I quit drinking altogether and I just surrounded myself with, with people that weren't in the party scene, you know, and I, 
I just got back to like just doing, doing me and really focusing on, you know, trying to work on my past. And that's where I like was able to dissect all those things and why I am the way I am and really working through a lot of the pain and anger that I was carrying with me through life on my mom's situation, all kinds of other things that just happen to people in life. And I worked through all that and I emerged on the other side, man, like it completely changed, man. And I, I realized that it, it was my calling in life to inspire other people with a pathway to financial freedom so that they can do the things that they were called to do on this earth. So do you think, Mike, that you could have done that by, while keeping the company? I, I think that me selling the company is what allowed me to truly take a step back. And sometimes you have to take one step back to take two steps forward. There's the, there's this this cloud around you when you're when you're immersed in something and you can't take a step back. It's like after I sold the company, me and my wife traveled Europe for a month. We went to Florida for a month. I just like I had complete time to just really think through what is my purpose on this earth, and I could have never done that without the time. So it's not necessarily that I would have needed to sell the company, but I do think just like unrestricted time to really just like pray on, you know, having God reveal what is the path that he has you for. Mm-hmm. What's very important. Well, it's interesting because I think, you know, like with all the different people I've interviewed and people that I talked to or us, like, you know, people wish they would have done that before they sold because they sold their identity or like there's the flip side where like, I literally had an interview a guy, super, super successful. Um, uh, digital marketer. And he's like, I just all of a sudden felt like there's a noose and like, no matter what I was going to sell the business. And so there's this whole, like, cause I think about our, like our framework and trying to help people see some of this a little bit clearer before they make rash decisions. But like sometimes as entrepreneurs, when we built our companies by being passionate people, mortgaging houses and going into craziness and in order to get, you know, something done. So like when all of a sudden you feel that cloud, you just kind of got to get out of it. But like, I don't know. I don't know if there is. I Honestly, I don't know if there is a right or wrong on what you do first. But the whole goal is to kind of just be aware of it because it's hard, you know, to do the introspective work that you did. is It's hard. It's hard stuff. It is. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, even harder than uh, than than getting up at 3 a.m. every night to feed my baby right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good news that you're still not. <laughs> it, 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 it's that extremely uncomfortable opening of of your past, and that just that that level of humility that you have to display to be able to admit that you've just fallen short. Mm-hmm. And I think that your healing is in your humility. What would you? And I know it's different because of your age, but like, you know, I've worked with a lot of baby boomers that kind of go through that, but they have another 30 years compounded on top of that situation. And then the introspective work, I think has more, you know, layers on top of it to break through, especially if you just realize, Hey, I'm 65, 70 and I'm not my business or like I did fall short, but where did I fall short? Oh my God, it was 10, 20 years ago. (laughs) You know, I don't know if you've got any thought. I mean, it's tough for us to give some advice when we when we haven't been through all that stuff with that. But I just, it, you know, you know, if you were to look back and maybe the question is, how would you do that without having a big moment? You know what I mean? Without going all the way down the the, the slot, the slippery slope. You know, is there exercise or things that you've that you went through that helped you that you would that you could see someone doing before they actually go down that route of depression or whatever it might be? For uh, that it's a, I'd have to think more about that for me. I'm not sure that if I hadn't completely like hit my knees and had to cry out, like I need help. Like, you know, I can't do this on my own anymore and bring God into my life. I don't think it would have changed. I think it's yeah, just the grace of God yourself. that really brought me down that road. So that would be my advice. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not, not here trying to, to, to do a big Jesus talk on your podcast, but for me, um, it was, it was finding my relationship with God again and, uh, the restoration that that brought to my life, to my career, to my family, to my marriage, um, ultimately allowing us to get pregnant. And, uh, man, I'm just in such a happy place right now. And just, you know, to, to just be able to live without, um, you know, without that, just without, you know, it's like 
we had talked about like, all right, you know, once I get there, then I'll start feeling this. Like I feel that every day now mm-hmm. for the first time in my life, money's not my God, you know? And I, so I don't feel like I have to achieve a certain status or I don't have to close that big deal. It's like, I'm just, I'm just happy where I'm at, man. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't need it anymore. I'm good where I'm at. And I, I find myself being more concerned about like, Am I helping other people unlock their potential? Am I helping these buildings realize their full potential? And so for me now, it's just, it's really about like my calling to like unlock potential, hidden potential and people, places and ideas. Mm. And that's why I love what you're doing, man. Your program really gives people an opportunity to not have to sell. It's to um, have a decision on whether they want to, but it allows people to set their business up to exit out of their business, whether they sell it or not, to mm-hmm. put in that full-time management, to put in the, the certain key areas of their business, where once all that's done, they got options. They right. can go, you know what, man, this thing's on autopilot. I can manage this ship and drive this bus 10 hours a week. And that's, that's what I want to do. And now I have all this other time where I can pursue my other passions. But for many people, I feel like, and for me, it was like, well, someday once I sell my company, then I'll start living life. I, I used to always hear my dad like, yeah, someday once I hit X number, then I'll be able to retire and start living. I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. Like so I'm true. in my mid thirties. Like I want to be living my life now. I don't want to be traveling Europe when I'm 80 years old. I want to be traveling Europe now. You know, it's so funny, Mike. I, I specifically remember asking my dad <laughs> I was like in middle school and like some guy drove by in like a, a Corvette red convertible. And I said, dad, how come everybody that drives a red convertible Corvette is old? <laughs> He's like, well, because that's when you make your money, son. And I was just like, well, that sounds really stupid. <laughs> I was just like, I don't really necessarily like that reality. <laughs> but, you know, I think Mike, you know, as you have gone through that and like, you know, hearing you know, which the authenticity that you tell the story is awesome because so many people, I mean, I interviewed a guy that told this story and we literally get off the air and he goes, yeah, I, I didn't tell, any, tell you on the show, but I, I had a panic attack on the plane after I signed the purchase agreement and like lost my mind. I was like, that's it. So we need to, you know, having those stories, knowing like how emotional this stuff is because, you know, the whole goal is to get out from underneath it. So you do have time to think. So you can actually make intentional decisions. And I think with you having this business now and what you're doing, you, you've got a little bit different intentions, right? It's a different motivation. Money's not your guide. So how are you looking at your business and your finances and the operations differently and what kind of different perspective this time compared to what you were before? It's pretty simple. Before was to build a system to make as much money as possible so that I could buy my time. Now it's to build a system that blesses as many lives as possible and the time I invest into that is joyful, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's no longer like I'm at work. Now I'm at home. Now it's like every day I get to go to work and I get to, to wake up with this level of excitement that I never had. I mean, man, that's, that's what it was, dude. It was like, bro, I'm I'm making a killing, but I wake up and I'm just like bashing my head against the wall. Like, (laughs) dude, this like, this is just, it's not challenging anymore. I don't feel like I'm changing lives. I don't feel like I'm stretching my creativity or my skills or my talent. Like, this isn't it, man. Like I need to be working on higher level, higher power type things. And now I'm doing that, man. I'm doing like super duper complex transactions, but our education piece is what I'm most passionate about. It's about, you know, taking uh, somebody who's smart and they have the, they have the, stick to itness to go through a process, but they need the playbook and I can give them the playbook. Hey man, here's my five steps. Here's exactly how we find fun, fix, fill and flip commercial real estate, take them through a program, get them in our coaching program. And like, for me, I don't even, I, I'll do the coaching for free on spec on what I would make on the back end. Now, you know, obviously we got other overhead, we got to pay here and stuff. But for me, it's like, all right, I'm no longer measuring my scoreboard by how much money I make. It's by how many other people I'm able to get out of the rat race, how many other 
buildings I'm able to change where now there's these cool flourishing, you know, buildings in these communities and things like that. And how, what do, kind of jobs does that create and stuff? So, I mean, it's, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but at the end of the day, dude, it's exciting to get up and be able to like actually impact people's lives in a real and meaningful way versus just like being all about the paycheck. I think, you know, if you were to go back 10, 15 years or so, um, people would lean towards, you know, this kind of stuff is cheesy, but I, you, you and I both disagree with that. And I think most of the, the, most of the world actually does is starting to disagree with that, which is all the natural stuff. I mean, I like the conscious capitalism. I don't know if you picked up the book since we, we talked last and read it. I mean, like conscious capitalism, I mean, like it's not just about the share price. I mean, like they actually just, I think it was two weeks ago, all like 200 CEOs of public companies said, Hey, for the first time, it's not about a quarterly report. Well, no, duh. Like, yeah. So cigarettes can make a bunch of money, but you're killing people and destroying the healthcare system in the process. Is that good or not? <laughs> like it's not just fluffy anymore. I mean, there's a, I think it's a harder challenge to do both to make money and to do good. And that's, I think I'm curious, give us a little bit of a rundown of your business model because that there's a lot of, you know, is that possible and how are you making money and doing good? And are you seeing a sacrifice in your return on investment? I mean, how, how, what's the, the jigsaw puzzle look like for you? Well, let's just take an example. Okay. So every one of the buildings I own has a church in it. Oh, cool. Okay. So why is that? Well, most of them had churches in them when I bought them, but part, <laughs> part of it is just like, all right, you got a small tenant. Okay. If I represent that tenant and I place them into a building, my commission might be like literally like $500. It's nothing. So nobody ever gives those guys attention. One of the things that frustrated me most about commercial real estate is that it still is very much an old boys club. Mm -hmm. Everybody holds their cards like this. Nobody wants to share any secrets with you because everybody's afraid of creating competitors. And that's why I started a podcast. I said, how do I come up with a platform so that the smartest, most successful people will give me an hour of their time and then I can ask them a bunch of questions and then allow the world to benefit from that knowledge. So that's why we started our podcast, the creative commercial real estate show. And so now for me, it's about, you know, it's just about unlocking opportunities where, you know, it's not just about upfront, what's good for business, what's good for financials, what's good for people don't need to be mutually exclusive things. You know, if we just focus on having a heart for everything that we do, and that might be like, hey, tenants struggling, can't pay rent on time. I can evict them, go after them for a judgment, or I can just keep it real with them and be like, man, you know, what's the deal? All right, your business is going under. Like, let's talk about a separation. Let me get a free lease sign in the window. I just had a situation where I just allowed a guy kind of out of his lease and I got to find it. And it's not that great financially. If I had partners on that property and all they cared about was a quarterly report, I wouldn't look like I'm doing my job, but it's just about, I don't think just, you know, bad things happen to good people, man. And I understand that. And you just, I think you gotta, you gotta have a little bit of a heart when it comes to dealing with your tenants, dealing with, you know, building owners and things like that. I got a lady right now. I keep trying to buy her property. It was her husband's machine shop. He died. And it's like, you know, I'm trying to buy this property. And it was like, every time I was calling her, I was talking about numbers and numbers. And all she wanted to talk about was like her husband's stuff that's still in there. And then like a light bulb went off and I'm like, dude, this lady doesn't care about the price. She wants it to go to somebody who she knows is going to be a good steward of her husband's stuff. Nope. And so like, it's just like taking a step back and be like, dude, I'm doing, I'm still doing it all wrong. You know what I mean? You got to keep relearning these Mm -hmm. lessons over and over and just realizing like, it all starts for me in, in like, in being grounded in your faith. And if you have that, like, there's nothing that I have now that's not given to me by God. And so if I continue to, to give of myself to other people and, you know, being in our worship band and things like that, like, I've just noticed things are falling into place, man. We just got a $175,000 grant for a project. And it's like, you know, that's by the grace of God. That's a big chunk of cash they're just giving us on a project. And it's like, we won over a bunch of other people. Why? Who knows? But let's continue just putting our heart in the right place and and doing right by people. And I think things just fall into place. If you don't make a killing, who cares? Because at the end of the day, the scoreboard is how many lives are you blessing, not how much money you're making. And that's, I think that, to answer your question, the number one 
difference between the way I'm building my business now is to be very deliberate about, you know, is what we're doing blessing people's lives or are we ruining people's lives versus how much money are we making doing it? Yeah. And I think you're also doing it, you know, you're, I think you've got a perfect balance and mix between all that. Cause you're also trying to do some unique things inside the real estate space where it's not just investments it's not just property management and other other stuff you're creating a valuable company to to give you that freedom you know you know you're not just because i think that the biggest challenge and you might you have a couple of um, words on this is like you know do you become the starving artist tradesman who is just doing what they're you know or the there's tons of consultants out there right because i've been trying to do the same thing with the consulting space right systematizing consulting and education which has been unbelievably difficult you know, can you, should you just, you know, do one job at a time because you love it? Well, then you're, you're financially sacrificing other things because you're not building a system. So like they kind of have both those at the same time where you're helping people, but you're also building a system that kind of gets you that higher level experience. I mean, I don't know if that's a good articulation of it or how you're viewing that. Yeah. I think if, if all I did was like go to church and volunteer on Sunday, I'm not impacting the world in the most way I can. I think the best way God's plan for me is to, to build a business, you know, and it's not necessarily about preaching God's word. It's about, um, I think building a system that blesses people's lives. And it has, you know, for many people, it, it, it doesn't need to be about, you know, their spiritual side. It's just about doing, doing good by people. And that I think feels good. Yeah. Yeah, that's super well said. Um, From a business standpoint, one of the reasons I'm really excited to go to your boot camp is I want to really figure out how to actually. So, we have an investment portfolio, right? We have, um, you know, we have, I think, 130 units right now of commercial properties. You know, I want to grow that. But I don't want to grow it just like, I don't want to start setting like, all right, my goal is to get to 300. My goal is to get to 500. My goal is to just build a business process around the management company, the brokerage business, and the investment portfolio so that it's not just this portfolio, it's this fully lubricated and oiled machine that includes the operations, the sales side of it, the accounting side of it, and so that the large you know, enterprise becomes a saleable business. And that's why I'm excited to work with you on really, you know, what does that look like? What are the key uh, personnel that I need to have? And what's their job descriptions look like to really make this thing an autopilot saleable business? Well, and I think to even layer on top of and bring it, loop it back to what you're saying earlier about the machine shop is this is what most people don't realize until after the fact if once they get like if they're doing good to their employees and they're like they've created this ecosystem of I mean this one woman that was on my show she was already buying her employees houses I mean talk about like you don't have a cash flow machine that you can do awesome things like that with unless you know you're the trustee of the Melinda Gates and Melinda and Bill Foundation right it like you need a cash flow machine to be able to give back and to be able to, if you, by doing the right things, you can sell to the right person. You know what I mean? Instead of going, okay, you're going to go sell the CBRE and they're going to torch it. I mean, not to say that they would, but like it's just an example, right? Where they don't treat the people that are the same way or the tenants the right way. I mean, it's just aligning. It, it allows you to do that and continue your legacy, which a lot of people, you know, you don't think about unless you build the machine, you're kind of forced to hit your number, especially if you, sure. you have your retirement that you've got to hit. What's the best way? Because you got boot camps coming up. You got a bunch of programs that, um, you know, you got a lot of services that, uh, that you can offer. What are, the, what are the links in the podcast, all that stuff for the listeners? Sure, yeah. Um, we're just launching a new website here this week or next week. Um, so if you go to our website right now, it might be the old version, but you can check it out. It's uh, commercialinvestorsgroup.com. Uh, you can shoot me an email, mike at commercialinvestorsgroup.com. Um, check us out on Facebook, Commercial Investors Group. And on there, we have all of our events. So we have um, coming up September 20 and 21s, the uh, North Star Real Estate Conference. That's the charity conference. It's going to be one of the largest real estate conferences in the upper Midwest here. Definitely recommend grabbing tickets for that, baby. I think they're a couple hundred bucks on sale right now if you use the promo code. And you can check that out. That's on our Facebook page. And then we have our three-day master series, which is basically if you ever wondered how to go find a commercial deal, uh, how to you know use other people's money to structure a partnership to buy it, 
you know, how do you actually evaluate how much the repairs should cost for that deal? Or how do you evaluate what the cash flow and financials are going to look like? This is a workshop. We're actually going to like really dive into it. You'll come out of that workshop being able to go find deals, evaluate them, make offers on them, and take them down with somebody else's money. So that's my goal by the end of that three-day boot camp. Um, so check that out. That's on our page there as well. Uh, that's facebook.com slash commercial investors group. Mike, it's been an absolute blast, man. Appreciate you sharing your story. It's been a lot of fun. Do it. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing forward uh, in our journey together as friends. And um, I'm really looking forward to, to attending your boot camp. So Touché. likewise. All right. Take care, bud. That was fun, man. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Mike. I can't tell you how much I appreciate him sharing the real stuff. So many times people want to paint it with rose-colored glasses like it was all fine and dandy. And I'll tell you what, it's so enjoyable to hear people share the real story. And I actually have another one coming up, another episode where a woman named Hannah explains real, real stuff about what it's like and the challenges that she had growing and exiting her company. Please check out our bootcamp page. If you want to get a, a handle on this before you deal with the energy burnout or you deal with some sort of thing, understand what your company's worth, what your options are, because this is pure freedom when you have the education and understand what all your options are. Like Mike said in the episode, if he would have known certain things, he might have had options. He didn't have options because at that point he was too burnt out and there was too many things happening at once. Where if you do the work to understand What's your company worth? What are the different exit options? How to have a team of advisors, have people sitting next to you. You can literally live free and then keep building the company, keep growing and, and making money and changing people's lives until something happens or until you want to transition to the next person or the next generation. But the whole point is you have a crash course into understanding how this works instead of just waking up and running on the hamster wheel every day. So check it out. October 8th, 9th, and 10th in Minneapolis, December 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Minneapolis, Dayton, Ohio, as well in November and February. Please check it out. Reach out to me, and then I'll walk you through the two-and-a-half-day agenda and anything that you want to know about what we're going to be covering. So with that being said, I will see you next week.